Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. A reading this morning from the scripture is from Psalm 8. Can you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray, God, as we hear these words today from your holy scripture that we will apply to our lives. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. O oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crown them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. Many of my friends and loved ones that I'd be seeing in these pews aren't here today, but we're really grateful that I can be sharing a word with you from our blessed worship space. I'm coming to you on this Sunday after Pentecost that is celebrated as Trinity Sunday, and without a doubt, I am almost certain that I'm speaking to people who are feeling a range of emotions. Some of us are feeling tired of the restrictions of life under COVID-19, and you're just ready to burst out and get back to normal. And some of us may be feeling confused and bewildered by the events of the last few days. And without question, without question, over the last couple of weeks, we have witnessed the highs and the lows of human behavior. A high, point, a high point for me was last Saturday, May 30th, at 3.22 p.m. I, along with millions of people in this country and around the world, watched the power of America's ingenuity and scientific capabilities on display. Elon Musk's SpaceX launched its crew, Dragon capsule, carrying two NASA astronauts into orbit from Florida's Kennedy Space Center. And then the next day, Sunday morning, they docked with the International Space Station. And I think it was just a great example of government and private sector working together in unity. But while people were looking up into the sky, watching the incredible flight of the crew Dragon capsule, on the ground, human interaction 
registered a new law. It was on the evening of Monday, May 25th, in the Powderhorn neighborhood of Minneapolis, George Floyd was arrested by the Minneapolis Police Department for trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. And what should have just been a routine, run-of-the-mill police call has since plunged our nation into what I call the dark abyss of violence and hate. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, the former Minneapolis police officer pushed his knee into Mr. Floyd's neck and back. With his blank, emotionless face, the officer squeezed the light and the life and the breath out of George Floyd. Mr. Floyd begged, he pleaded. We could hear his repeated cries, I can't breathe. I'm hurting in my head and my chest and my stomach. But all of his pleas were ignored. Now, I haven't watched and won't watch this video clip in its entirety. I, I just couldn't. Because if I did, I think my chest would explode. Because everything tells me that in that moment, Mr. Floyd, let me say that again, everything tells me that what happened to Mr. Floyd in that moment was wrong. It was demonic. But George Floyd did in trying to pass a counterfeit bill and what the officers did to him were so disproportionately unequal and unjust, it, it, it defies logic. So what do we make of this kind of behavior? How do we make sense of what's been going on? And some of you, some of you don't know, and you need to know that for many years my father served as a, as a police officer, and so I'm not here berating police officers. I don't believe that all police officers are like, are like Derek Chauvin. I believe that the police officers are empowered and delegated to protect and serve, not execute and be judge and jury on street corners. And so here we are. Another black male has died while in police custody, and now America is on fire, literally and metaphorically. Our nation is in this rage this storm of protests and frustration and weeping and lament. And I also want to say, I also want to say this, so you understand where I'm coming from, that looting and shooting and rampaging and setting fires to police vehicles and to stores, it's wrong. That kind of crim criminal activity has no justification. And in fact, what I think that kind of behavior is doing night after night is that it's, it is slowly if not, has already eviscerated the core message that the protests are all about, this desire for change and for justice. And so, from where I sit, in just a sh few short days, we saw the heights and we saw the depths of what human beings can accomplish. We saw the light and we saw the darkness of the human soul. And again, how do we make sense of this? And so I'm grateful to God that on this morning, I have the opportunity to point you to Psalm 8 as a way to gain perspective. Because in Psalm 8, we're reminded of the beauty and the majesty of God's creation. In Psalm 8, we're reminded of the dignity that is inherent in all human beings. You see, Psalm 8 is like a sandwich. If you can picture a sandwich with two slices of bread, it begins and ends with the same phrase. 
These are the two slices of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These lines frame the content of the psalm in the majesty of God and in the praise of God. But then in between the opening and the closing of this song of praise to God, we read about God's creation of the moon and the stars and the earth and the animals and the seas and the rivers and the water. We read about the creation of human beings. And then we come to what I call the meat of the sandwich, this pivotal existential question that you see in verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, and you can just picture David looking up into the, into the starlit heavens as he's out in the fields caring for the sheep and asking the question in verse 4, what are human beings, that you're mindful of them. And when you ask that kind of question, you're talking about the smallness and the almost insignificance of human beings in light of the grandeur and the glory of God. What are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? And my brothers and sisters, now more than ever, we must accurately answer that question. I would like to posit to you today that the future of our world, our children, depends on how we define the answer to the question, what are human beings? Old Testament professor James Lindbergh has described Psalm 8 as a psalm for stargazers. And I think that's wonderful and poetic to say that. But even more importantly, I think it is a psalm for soul searchers. Because in the middle of this psalm stands this searching question, what are human beings that God is mindful of them. And equally so, we can turn the question for ourselves, what are human beings that we should be mindful of them or of each other? Because here's the reason why that question is important. If we go along with our society and say that human beings are just racial constructs, then we can simply begin classifying human beings the way we classify dogs. I happen to have a at one time, had a Collie Shepherd. At another period in my life, I had a, a Doberman Pinscher. We've had all kinds of dogs. And if that's how we're looking at human beings as racial constructs, then we're going to have problems understanding what it means when we look at human beings. What are human beings? If we say human beings are the sum total of what they achieve, then we're simply going to grade people based on their zip code, their wealth, their status, the way they look, their skin color, and we're still not going to answer the question. What are human beings? If human beings are just masters of their own fate, captains of their own soul, then as human beings, we will say we are accountable to no one. We're a law unto ourselves. And if that's how we see human beings, we're nowhere near the, the answer to the question. In fact, Psalm 8 gives us the answer, paints a whole different picture. And the psalmist says human beings are the crowning glory of God's creation. So much so that when God sees us, God doesn't see the artificial constructs and labels of race. God doesn't see us by race. When God sees us, God doesn't see us on the basis of our achievements. 
where we live, what we accomplish, the school we went to, how much money we have. When God looks at us, God sees us as human beings. Genesis records it this way. And God said, let us make man, let us make woman. And when God was finished with making us, God said it was good. God made us, the psalmist says, a little lower than angels. Elohim made us to be in fellowship with him. And it's important we say this on Trinity Sunday. Elohim made us to be in fellowship with him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, we carry the imprint of God within us. We're crowned with glory and honor. And then the psalmist says, God has given us dominion, not in a tyrannical way, not in an independent way, but as stewards and caretakers of God's creation. We're made to be our brother's keepers. We're charged to care and to work for and to care for, for what God has created. And from where I sit, the action of that former police officer, it was a fail. He failed to realize that what he was doing that day was he wasn't taking out the trash. He wasn't killing and brushing off some irritating insect. He was crushing a man, a, a human being made in the image and the likeness of God. And I've often wondered to myself over these last few months, if God were to somehow grade us for our management of creation, for our love for each other, what would that grade be? I couldn't tell you categorically what the grade would be, but I have a hunch that the grade would not be as great. Because we human beings will flock to the museums of our world to see works of art like Michelangelo's Pieta, and yet we fail to see the masterpiece riding beside us on the train, shopping in the grocery store beside us, living in our neighborhoods, running through our neighborhoods, we fail to see human beings as people made in the image of God. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is how did God's creation, God's beautiful world, God's beautiful human beings become so twisted? I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor theologian, I'm not a politician, I'm not a sociologist, and so no matter how you try to slice this through the lens of theology, through the lens of scripture, the Bible tells us that we must begin to answer the question of how we got to be where we are by looking at the sin and the darkness of the human soul. Racism is a sin. It's a sin that blinds us to the majesty of God's image in everyone. Sin has blinded our eyes. The other question we've got to ask ourselves then is, if that is the problem facing us, what does God expect of us in this time? I think God wants us to be angry. And I think it's okay to be angry. I think God wants us to grieve. And I've shed a few tears for what's going on and what continues to go on. I think God wants us to pray. I think God wants us to act. And for those who go out into the streets of Evanston and around Chicago and around the world and are marching peacefully, speaking into the void that this is wrong, I think that is appropriate, that God wants us to act, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. 
But I think another thing God wants us to do, and, and again, this is my understanding of reading Scripture, that nowhere in the reading of Scripture do I see people being described as part of their identity as being black or white or Asian or Hispanic or whatever. In fact, Paul says in Colossians and in Ephesians, he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek anymore. There is neither male or female. It's time for us to stop relating to each other on the basis of race. And if I had the time, I could go further into that. But let me just quote from one of my favorite authors. It's from the book that Francis Collins the doctor and scientist wrote. It's called The Language of God. And he did a massive research along with many other scientists and researchers on the study of the human genome. It's called The Genome Project. And this is what he says in his book. He says at the DNA level, now listen to me carefully, at the DNA level, we are all 99.9% identical. That similarity applies regardless of which two individuals from around the world you choose to compare. That is an important thing to hold on to. And so by DNA analysis, he says, we humans are truly part of one family. Now, this is not a theologian speaking. This is not a Bible preacher speaking. This is a scientist. And that's all we've been hearing these days. We must trust the science, and I'm asking you this morning to trust the science of Dr. Collins. By DNA analysis, we humans are truly part of one family. It's true from a scientific basis, but it's also true from Scripture. Scripture has been saying this for millennia upon millennia. Every person is made in the image of likeness of God. Every person is made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory, crowned with great honor. We're all the same. We're one human family. You're my brother. You're my sister. And when we stop looking at each other on the basis of race, it begins to change the dynamic of how we engage with each other. I think the second thing God wants us to do as we come to the communion table is to remember the accomplishment of the cross. Now, this may not sell well on the streets of Chicago. This may not sell well at the midnight hour on the streets of Washington, D.C., when people are throwing bottles and burning cars. But we lead the way as people of the kingdom of God. And the Bible tells us that as we think about these troubling issues, we must remember the accomplishment of the cross. And we must be careful of what I call oversized indignation. What Officer Chauvin and the officers did was horrid. We could use the word murder. We could use the word, uh, uh, it was a horrible thing that he did, to that, to, that they did to, to George Floyd. But here's what we're hoping for, and I use the word hope with ear quotes. I am hoping that our system of justice will rightly sort out right from wrong and provide justice. That's what we're hoping for. But when we look at the cross, and we must avoid oversized indignation, when we look at the cross, we must remember that those four officers are not the only sinners for whom Jesus died. That before a holy God, we have all sinned. The Apostle Paul wrote, here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Black people have sinned. White people have sinned. Asians have sinned. Hispanics have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I think when we remember the cross, we must lament and we must weep. We must also stand as one people and repent. This is not the time to break into stores. This is not the time to rob. This is not the time to pillage. This is not the time to cast invectives and go political and cast curses at each other across the political divide. This is a time for us to look within our hearts and repent and say, Lord, I have sinned. When you remember the cross, here's what we remember. As has been famously said, that the ground at the foot of the cross, it is level. It is level. And so all who have sinned can stand at that cross and are equal in the sight of God. Sinners and Jesus paid this significant price so that all sinners can be forgiven. Jesus paid this awesome price on the cross so that his love, his love for the whole world could be shown. And you know, at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters, prejudice, the plant of prejudice cannot sprout. Because at the foot of the cross, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, and there is love. I love the prayer that we sometimes pray in our church, and this is what we've often prayed. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's children say, Amen.